Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we'll finish the chapter from verse 6, so 6 through 23. That's page 245 in the Bibles there in your seats. While you're finding that, first of all, again, want to acknowledge uh, the blessing of having our ruling elder, Ed Cross, step in last week when I was uh, under the effects of COVID, but it's good to be back with you. And if you don't recall where we were two weeks ago, uh, David was on the run. He had been helped by the priests at Nob to be fed and to be armed with the sword of uh, Goliath. And then he has fled to the Philistines, and then he's at the cave of Adullam, and then he gathers people to himself who are hurting and uh, distressed. But despite an attempt to find safety in a Moabite town, prophet tells him to come back to Judah. So he has been on the run from King Saul. He's back in Judah with those that are following him. And that's where we pick up this morning in the story of God's raising up of a new king. Let's attend to God's word with the help of his spirit. 1 Samuel 22, 6 through 23. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. <coughs> Excuse me. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have acquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to stretch the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, 
child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ehud, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You may be seated. Excuse me. Let's pray. Lord, there's a catch in my throat, but I pray that my voice would not hinder yours. That you would speak to me, to those that are gathered here through your word for your glory. That you would instruct us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would nurture us with the bread of your word. Be with us by your spirit, we pray, for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. Few things are as painful as betrayal. To have a trusted colleague at work take credit for your labors, for a longtime friend to share a secret or gossip about us, for our own spouse to break their marriage vows. And those wounds are salted by the breaking of trust. Because not only does gossip or missing out on a promotion hurt us, but because it's done by someone meant to love us, someone meant to protect us or to care for us, someone we trusted, it hurts all the more. When we trust, we give something of ourselves to the other person. A bit of our safety, a bit of who we are in our secrets. We give ourselves so very fully to our spouses. And so when there is a betrayal, it's not just the wound of what they do, but there is the repudiation of us. Our worth, our dignity in their eyes made so low because of their actions. This morning's passage is about betrayal. First, it's about a perceived betrayal that does not exist. Saul's perception that Jonathan and David are betraying him and that everyone is conspiring against him. But then there is a very real betrayal at unimaginable levels. The betrayal of a king against God, against his people, and all that a king is supposed to be. In looking at the story of betrayal, we are confronted by the question of what we value and therefore whom we trust. Because for those of us that have experienced betrayal, when someone has broken trust and through that breaking of trust has hurt us, it calls into question who then we should trust. Whether or not we can trust in the future, and upon what basis we determine what our trust and who our trust should be in. 
who is worthy of our trust. This morning, as we examine what happens in this passage, we're going to look at the root of the betrayal, the soil in which it is planted and an alternative to the king who accomplishes this betrayal. As we open up here in Gibeah, as the passage opens up, we see a king who will reveal himself to be set against his people. Up to this point, the heat of Saul's wrath has largely been against David, and it's had some spillover onto Jonathan. Jonathan, like David, had to dodge a spear from the king. But in our passage this morning, that wrath, that anger of Saul spills out upon the court, his servants gathered with him there in Gibeah, the priest Ahimelech, the priesthood, and then all of Nob. Let's start, though, at the end. Let's start at Nob, because sometimes when we read Scripture, the distance of time and place, the fact that we aren't in the story, experiencing it ourselves, may leave us feeling a little bit disconnected. But we would be woefully under-responsive to the message of this passage if we don't attend to it well. (coughs) So I'm going to start at verse 16. Read or listen with me. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. But then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That should be enough to greatly distress us, that the king over God's people, the king meant to uphold what is right and true and good, should kill the priesthood. Deuteronomy 17, 18 says of the king, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of God's law, approved by the Levitical priests. The priesthood, who is supposed to remind the king of the law of the fact that he rules according to God's laws and that they are the ones to help him understand what those laws are and to approve his understanding of the laws, this is the category of people that the king has put to death. Eighty-five priests put to death. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Saul's violent rage is now pouring out not only on the innocent priest and his family, but upon the innocent residents of Nob, leading to their complete destruction. I wanted to start here as we examine this passage because we need to look at the sinful roots of Saul's betrayal of his kingly duties, the priesthood and the people. 
But if we're to understand why that root is so dangerous, so scary, we must really examine the fruit that grows from that root. That a king would not only put to death the existing priesthood, but the city in which they dwell, men and women, children, and all of the animals of that city. If we don't take that destructive fruit seriously, we won't attend well to the root. What sets Paul, excuse me, what sets Saul so devastatingly against his people? The simple answer is that he has rejected God as king. That he has rejected the reality that God has authority over him as king. He has forgotten that he rules God's people for God. This is why Saul lost the legacy of a kingly line back in 1 Samuel 15. He didn't obey God's command to destroy the Amalekites completely. Interestingly enough, 1 Samuel 15 is darkly reflected in 1 Samuel 22. Saul failed in 1 Samuel 15 to impose the ban, that is to completely just destroy the Amalekites and their livestock when God had given through the prophet Samuel, explicit destruction that in this case, he should do that. And he didn't. But here, out of anger, completely out of accord with the justice of God's decrees, at Saul's command, an Edomite, and the Edomites are a branch of the same family as the Amalekites, completely destroys a town of his own people. God's own people. Because Saul has rejected God as king over him, as God's authority being over him, he has come to see his rule as not for the sake of the people, for the glory of God, but to see the people as for the sake of his own rule and his own glory. If his rule is about him, then if you aren't for him, you're against him. We see this as the scene unfolds from the beginning, we see his self-centered perspective. First, we see how greed has come to define his rule. As he has found out that, that David and those with him are back in Judah and it's been discovered, he begins to question them. And he said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Who is he talking to? The king who is meant to be king over all of Israel? Who is represented there with him among his court? It's just his family. It's just his tribe. These are the people that he wants to benefit. These are the people whose advice he's listening to to lead all of God's people. He then asks, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? He's come to see his rule and the benefits of his rule about personal comfort and personal wealth. He's using greed to motivate them. He's saying, are you guys going to be okay with David? David's not going to give you vineyards. David's not going to give you commands. He's not going to set you as leaders of thousands and hundreds. What's David going to do for you? Versus what will I do for you? And then he blames the court for not telling him about Jonathan's covenant. And he distorts it to a plot against him fomented by Jonathan. Not only is he wrong that there's a plot against him, but he begins to see Jonathan as the one stirring up David against him. He describes David as not being on the run, but, but David is obviously laying in wait for him. 
to destroy him. By wielding his authority for himself, he has lost it. He senses it, but instead of taking responsibility for it, he blames others. And we can see that he's lost on the basis of his authority, that as he has come to rule more and more for himself, instead of for the good of the people he rules over under authority to God, that, that when he tells those gathered around him to strike down the priests, they, they don't. That it's Doeg the Edomite, the foreigner outside of the covenant, who does it. He completely absent is his self-awareness of his pride, of his jealousy, of his violence, and his paranoia. Those that aren't for him must be against him. And so he is in fear of how they might stand in his way. He sees betrayal around every corner. As one commentator says, a man of fear can only rule by fear. It's not justice that Saul is looking for when he summons Elimelech. It's a scapegoat. He wants to remove any vestige of that that could stand in his way. And so when Ahimelech defends David's character, he's saying, this is your son-in-law. This is the one that you trusted to be over your bodyguard. This is the one that all of your servants esteem who has been faithful. And in fact, I wasn't doing anything special for him. I've sought the Lord for him before. When Ahimelech says this, as an appeal to justice, Saul sees it as a subversion of his authority. And thus, because in his eyes, Ahimelech has helped his enemy, then Ahimelech, his family, and all of Nob is opposed to him and therefore must be wiped out from the earth. The court of advisors and bodyguards, frankly, is fortunate that their unwillingness to take up the sword in that moment didn't lead to the forfeiture of their own lives. What we see in Saul is that the rejection of God's authority over him has led Saul to dehumanize the people that he is meant to rule into objects of either help or hindrance. They are assets or they are obstacles to be removed. They are not image bearers. They are not blessed recipients of the covenant anymore. They are those he is over top of for his good, for his security, for his prosperity, and those in his inner circle. Saul's rage-filled spiral into violence is a reflection of the disastrous consequences of seeking to exercise authority without remembering that we are under the authority of God. And any who are entrusted to our care are not for us, but they are rather for God in service to God. When we forget this, it leads to all kinds of consequences. It leads parents to seek their significance and their meaning through the level of obedience or accomplishment from their kids. It leads bosses to see employees as merely financial assets or liabilities instead of those whose work is reflective of the God who works and rests from his work. It distorts pastors and elders from shepherd feeding the sheep and to looking at the congregation to count how many lamb chops they can line their freezer with. 
It changes governing authorities from public figures and servants into political power grabbers. And at times, those who would see their people as cannon fodder to throw away on the battlefields of foreign nations to serve pride, ambition, and ego. When God is not authority over us, when God does not reign, then the people that we are called to teach, to parent, to lead at work, to govern are no longer those we are called to serve and care for in love and glory for God. They are there to bolster our authority, our power, our ego. To betray the authority of God over our life is not only to miss out on the benefit of God's blessed rule over us, it opens the door to destructive patterns of those who come under our sway. And if we are to be wary of such destructive fruit, we will want to not become such leaders. We want to say, am I parenting without God's rule over me? Am I a boss or a leader of my group in a way that reflects God's authority? Am I an elder or a deacon or a shepherd under authority? So we need to understand that whatever authority, whatever leadership, whatever power we have, that as soon as we remove it, from being under, God, under God's power. Not only do we miss out on God, but we risk those around us. But we shouldn't stop with just examining our own responsibility. But bef Because before we can truly examine the remedy, we must consider the soil in which such a root takes place. Saul has rejected God as king over him in his power, in his rule as king over God's people, and it has led to the destruction of those he is meant to protect and care for. How does that happen? Well, it happens in the context of a people against themselves. Not only is the king set against his people, but the king is established among a people who are opposed to the good of themselves. We need to remember as we read this passage, that this passage just doesn't fall down from the sky on its own. It is set within the story of what has been happening among God's people. Saul doesn't spring from a vacuum. He comes out of the request from the people of Israel to Samuel to appoint a king for them like the nations. In 1 Samuel 8. That's what the people wanted, and they got more than they bargained for. They got a king like the nations, like their enemies, who is now treating them as if they are the enemy. Saul has begun, become to sound like the source of concern and lament at the opening of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. David is anointed of the Lord to be the future king. The priesthood is anointed of God. And Saul and his servants are conspiring to get rid of them as an obstacle to Saul's own rule. And when the people made this request, God said to Samuel, they had rejected God himself from being king over them. That their request for Saul was a rejection of God as king. Instead of trusting the covenant God who had called the people to himself, who called them to be his treasured possession, 
Instead of remembering that God had not only called them, but had given them the promised land, according not to their strength, the strength of His mighty hand, to bless them in the land of milk and honey. What they wanted was a warlike king to protect their security, to protect their borders, to protect their comfort instead of the Lord. Saul's eventual rejection of God's ultimate authority is a reflection of the fact that the people have already been unwilling to trust and depend on the leadership and authority of God. Their hope is not in their eternal king, but in military and financial security. And yet, as we see Saul testing the loyalty of his men with the offers of positions of military influence and the promises of property and vineyards, he is exhibiting the same mindset of his people. Their request for such a king comes at the end of a period, the period of the judges, in which Scripture continually described the way that they lived as doing what was right in their own eyes. Saul's rebellious betrayal against the people of his kingdom is a result of their actions against their own well-being, the well-being of one another, by entrusting their hope in a man and a king instead of trusting in God and his ways and his rules. I was talking to a, a friend and fellow pastor, asking his thoughts on a particular institution that I believe has become corrupt and is struggling to uphold the trust of the people it serves. And his answer was, well, it's a lot like McDonald's. I thought that an odd comparison, but he said, well, here's the thing about McDonald's. When you talk to most people about McDonald's, the majority of people will say, well, you know, it's not good for you. It's greasy. It's not all that good compared to other hamburgers and cheeseburgers. The service isn't that great, and the reality is it's polluting the world, and it's not good for us, and it's not good for the world. But McDonald's and fast food restaurants like McDonald's continue to exist. In fact, they continue to make tons of money because people keep going to McDonald's and similar restaurants. Why? Because there is a market. There are plenty of people willing to pay for cheap greasy, convenient food that McDonald's would not continue to exist. Burger King, Taco Bell, whatever. If there weren't the people who desired cheap, easy, convenient food at the cost of their health and their pocketbook. There wouldn't be shepherds that take advantage of the flock. Celebrities and political leaders who lead to the destruction and corruption of the people if there wasn't a, an appetite for such people. Even if we look at some of the celebrities and some of the politicians and, and some of the leaders in our nation and say, well, they're really the product of wealthy forces wielding power behind the scenes. They're not really a reflection of the will of the people because money talks we need to ask, well, where do those men and women with so much money and power and influence come from? Because they continue to operate because we as a society value power, influence, and wealth. 
I'm not saying that if you have experienced a personal betrayal or abuse by an authority figure, that you are responsible for that. But I am saying that communities, I am saying that towns, I am saying nations and societies that value certain things reflect those values in whom they tend to promote, in whom they tend to follow on Twitter, in whom they watch on TV, and in whom they elect to office. And it's a poor choice to try to put people like us who are primarily reflecting our desires for comfort, for protection, for security in earthly things. Consider that what God's people are saying is we want to be secure from the nations. We want to be able to farm the land and produce good harvests and eat of them and grow fat and wealthy and safe. So we're going to trust in a man who is taller and more handsome than the rest. Consider the alternative. The hints of the alternative are are planted here in the passage for us. In verse 7, Saul said to his servants, Will David... Will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of thousands? That is almost word for word quoting from 1 Samuel 8, verses 12 through 14, when Samuel, at the behest of God, told the people what would happen. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. God knew what would happen. And then also in what happens with Ahimelech and the priesthood. That what happens is because of the rage of Saul, and yet it was a fulfillment of God's intention. What Saul intended for evil was used of God to bring judgment because back in 1 Samuel 2, when Eli was leading the priesthood astray and his sons were stealing from the people and, and abusing sexually the people, a prophet is sent to him and says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar and shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. The priestly line of Eli has suffered the destruction that the prophet of God said would happen all the way before the birth of Samuel. God has displayed, reminds us in this passage, not only of his omniscience, but of his omnipotence, his power to bring about what he says will happen. The people have rejected an all-knowing and all-powerful God as king over them for a greedy and insecure king who reflects their own insecurity and their own greed. But this is not where the comparison ends. For while Saul destroys his own people for the illusion of betrayal, how does the Lord respond to his people when they have betrayed him, when they have rebelled, when they have rejected him as king? He gives them a king for them instead of against them. 
God has anointed a man to be king after Saul, who does not reflect the heart of the people, but a man after God's own heart. That is how David is described. And so though David's play, his part in this passage is pretty short, what do we see? That Abiathar flees to David. He tells him what has happened. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Does that sound like Saul? Hey, servants, this is your fault. This is Jonathan's fault. This is the son of Jesse's fault. And though it would have been wrong for David to strike down Doeg the Edomite without cause, yet he feels the burden of responsibility for what has happened to the people. Instead of casting blame, he shoulders the burden upon himself. And then he offers refuge to Abiathar. Already he is one who the king has set himself against. Already the king seeks his life. It's bad enough for the king to be upset with you, but then you are going to give shelter to another enemy and risk further political disadvantage, further anger, further vehemence to the wrath and rage of Saul. And yet he sees his responsibility as a shepherd of God's people, as he trusts in God as the one who has rule over him to see his responsibility to protect the remainder of the priesthood because the purpose of his rule is to protect and defend God's people so that they can worship God as his unique covenant people. While Saul's descent into self-focused rule sets him against his people, David's fear of the Lord, his heart after God, causes him to lead for the sake of his people, bringing them under his charge and care and refuge. David's concern for justice and his trusting of God's will before his own is a reminder to us, is a picture for us of the king that would come. Another king that God would provide. A stem from this line instead of Saul's line. Who would look at the sin and destruction. What the wrath and anger of men has accomplished. Who would look on the crowds who he described as harassed and leaderless and say, look what you've done to yourself. You brought this on yourselves. I feel sorry for you. No, uh, that king comes and says, you are like sheep without a shepherd. I will be your shepherd. And he does this to not just the people who have suffered, not just the people who have been attacked, but the same people who have rejected his rule over them already. Instead of a king that says, I'm coming to bring about the the fruit of my anger, you are for the sake of me accomplishing what I want for myself, that Jesus comes to say, I am king for your good. And the greatest good for you is to experience the goodness of God's reign in me. Jesus didn't wait until we loved us while we were still enemies, 
Christ, the anointed, the king, died for us. And so that asks us to say, when David shows trust in God rather than men, will we put our trust in prayer rather than in polls? When we are seeking wisdom for how to live, will we come to God's word or will we go to TikTok or YouTube and whatever today's influencer says is the best way to experience the perfect body or the perfect house or the perfect marriage? Will we say the greatest desire of our hearts is to experience the reign of God in our life through Christ who came to save rebels and those that betrayed him? Or will we set ourselves against our king and against ourselves by again rejecting his rule? Brothers and sisters, will we trust ourselves and those that look and act just like us? Or will we entrust ourselves to the king who knows our betrayal, knows our rebellion, know how much we have broken his trust and yet still calls us to experience refuge and security and safety and flourishing under his reign. I'm going to try to follow Christ. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you who reign for our good sent us your son that though we were rebelling, though we were betraying you, that you use your rule to offer us refuge and safety and security at the cost of your own son, Jesus, just as David risked his life to protect Abiathar. O oh Lord, when we are tempted to trust in other things and therefore to not trust in you, would you convict us and help us? In Christ's name, amen.